Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And Roger, can we bring the house lights up just a little bit more? There we go. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're getting to the home stretch here. We're in the last chapter of 1 Timothy. So back when I was in college, there was this thing called a mall. And uh, people used to go there. I'm just joking. <laughs> Some of you don't know what malls are because they're not around anymore. But back in, the, back in the day, when people went shopping in malls, they didn't go on Amazon and places like that. No, back, I worked at a shoe store. Some of you may remember Kenny's Shoes. It was a, a shoe store, and um, I sold shoes in college, and um, my boss was a different type of character. He was a weird kind of guy. I thought that he may have been doing cocaine in the back uh, warehouse room. I, I don't know for certain, but I had some suspicions. But there was a cardinal rule at Kenny's Shoes that when you were helping a person, this is back when you would help people try on shoes, and you would never sit on your bottom. You would squat. Okay, so you would squat when you would help customers. Well, it was a long day, and I decided just for a few moments, just for a second, to sit on my, my little bottom. And so he came over, and he kicked me right in the butt. Sorry. <laughs> he kicked me and chewed me out and told me to get up and basically embarrassed me in front of all these customers. And it kind of hurt a little bit. Like, it hurt my backside, but it really hurt my pride to think, why in the world are you kicking me in the bottom? And so anyway, I, I thought about how I was going to stand up, and I was I really like, like, when you get hit, what's the first reaction? You want to stand up, and you want to, like, you're going to hit me, I'm going to hit you back. So I had to, like, okay, you're in a store, there's customers, take a deep breath. I, I didn't retaliate. But at that moment, I was like, this is not good behavior from a boss. He's kind of a jerk. Now, I don't want you to raise your hands, but how many of you have ever had bosses that were a jerk? I said, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. <laughs> I bet you if we had time in this room, we could all tell some funny, tragic, maybe some hilarious stories about our jobs and things that have happened in the workplace. Now, some of you this morning may absolutely hate your job. Some of you may absolutely love your job. But here's the one thing about life. Your job is a significant part of your life. Even if you're retired, this still applies to you. And so what I'm going to share with you is probably the most important verse that I think drives my life and should drive your life. It's from 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, to everything to the glory of God. So how can you glorify God in a difficult situation or at a job that you may not particularly like? How do you honor God at your work? Now, over the past few weeks in 1 Timothy, we've been looking about how we should be treating one another. 
So we first talked about we need to have a culture of patience with one another, purity, provision, especially widows. We need to take care of our widows, those in need in the congregation. We need to meet needs. And then last week we talked about elders, how you need to treat the elders well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And you don't want to bring a false accusation against an elder unless you have multiple witnesses. And so now as we move into chapter 6, Paul's going to address a topic that we as Americans may bristle at. It may be a little uncomfortable when we even hear this word. It may be a little bit confusing. Paul's going to address how slaves should respond to their masters. And anytime you bring up the subject of slavery, there can be a lot of emotion, a lot of confusion. It's kind of a touchy subject. So I want us to tread carefully through this passage, and I need to explain to you, and I will in just a moment, how slavery worked in the ancient Greek world because it's a lot different than Civil War American chattel slavery that we've experienced in our nation. So let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, this passage in its immediate context directly addresses slaves in that ancient culture. But there is a biblical principle for us today, and the biblical principle for us today is employees and employers and how you relate on the job, in your occupation, in the workforce. And so here's the main point of this passage. Your attitudes and actions at work can either help or hurt your Christian witness. Your attitudes and your actions at work can either help or hurt your Christian witness. Now, let's just first address the issue of slavery because you may find it odd or even offensive that I'm even talking about that or the Bible even addresses that. Or that why slaves, why are we talking about slavery this morning? I came to church and I'm like, why is Pastor Sean talking about this? Well, it's because it's in the Bible, but we need to address it. But let's just talk about slavery. First of all, slavery was not part of God's ordained plan in creation. That was not God's ordained plan. Marriage was God's ordained plan, a sacred bond between a husband and a wife. Even the call to work was part of God's plan. God put Adam in the garden to work the garden. This is before death and sin came into the world. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God ordained marriage as good. God ordained work as good. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, you don't see slavery. Slavery comes as a result of the fall of Adam. When he sinned, he brought sin into the world. And so slavery is a product of the fall. So it's not part of God's original plan of creation. And second, the Old Testament condemned slavery. Deuteronomy 24-7. 
If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then the thief shall die. You shall purge the evil from your midst. Notice how the Old Testament calls that an evil, an evil that needs to be purged from their midst. Now, in the Old Testament, there was something that was allowed. They allowed what was called indentured servanthood. So, for example... If you had a major debt and you were an Israelite in major debt, you could voluntarily, not being captured, you could voluntarily go in and work as an indentured servant for a master to pay off your debt voluntarily. But then that only lasted for six years. At the end of six years, you were to be released. And so it wasn't forced. It was voluntary. You could work as an indentured servant. So it was not part of God's creation, slavery, The Old Testament condemns it. But let me just tell you, thirdly, Paul already condemned slavery earlier in this letter. What did he say back in chapter 1? Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine he's already condemned slavery earlier in the book he also advocated paul does for slaves to gain their freedom if they had opportunity to do so in first corinthians seven twenty one, were you a bond servant when called do not be concerned about it but if you can gain your freedom avail yourself of the opportunity if you can get your freedom paul says go for it and then there's an entire book of the bible devoted towards how masters and slaves relate to one another. Philemon. Philemon was written by Paul. Philemon needed to welcome back his escaped slave Onesimus and bring him back and not treat him as, per se, a slave, but as a brother in Christ. In Philemon, at the end of the the book, Philemon 15 and 16, For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and to the Lord. Welcome Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. Now, slavery in the ancient world was a lot different than American Civil War chattel slavery. When we think about slavery, we naturally think about like Civil War slavery. And here's what's so evil about slavery in America. It was solely based on ethnicity and race. It was solely based on those of African descent to capture and to, to basically discriminate based upon ethnicity and race. But in the ancient Roman world, it wasn't based on ethnicity or race. There were a lot of different factors for slavery in the ancient world. Most scholars believe that about 20% of the population in ancient Rome were slaves. Now, this was everything from being a privileged slave in the Roman Empire, in 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 the emperor's house, to working in the coal mines. And here's what slaves did. There were all different types of slaves in that ancient world. Many of them were farmers. They were housekeepers. They were nannies, they were teachers, they were craftsmen, they were businessmen. As a matter of fact, almost all the civil servants in the Roman Empire were slaves. The the administration of the city, the governments, all the civil servants, it wouldn't operate without 
slaves. And slaves could come and go as they pleased. It wasn't like they were um, like in cages and, and couldn't go, and, but, but they didn't have a lot of legal rights. But slaves during that time could save up enough money to buy themselves out of slavery. So a lot of slaves were paid. They could save up money to emancipate themselves, to release themselves from slavery. So why didn't Paul become a social revolutionary and work to end slavery in the ancient world? Why, why didn't Paul do that? Well, that wasn't Paul's calling. Paul was called to be a missionary to the Gentiles. But here's what Paul understood. Paul understood that if I get the gospel out to the known world, the gospel will change hearts. You see, here's what's happened in culture, in in the history of the world. When Christianity has gone into a culture, what eventually happens? Slavery ends. Slavery ends in cultures when the true Christianity ends goes in and the gospel makes an impact. And so morally and spiritually, slavery is evil. It is deplorable. It is wicked. But we've seen throughout history that when cultures embrace Jesus and the gospel, slavery usually ends. So Paul was not a social crusader to end slavery. He was a preacher of the gospel. And also, the early church really believed that Jesus was coming back anytime soon, so they didn't concern themselves with ending some of these things. So New Testament scholar William Mounts has said this. He says, what is at stake is the reputation of the gospel and God's reputation among the heathen. Paul's silence is not a tacit approval of slavery. So here's the point. Owning somebody as property, as a slave, is wicked, evil, evil, deplorable. We we condemn slavery in all aspects. Even slavery today. Human trafficking is slavery. All the things that we see today. But let's look at the context here. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's pastoring in a town where slavery is a reality. It was just embedded in the culture. Whether they liked it or not. And Paul could have said, hey, slaves, you need to figure out how to deal with life on your own. But as a good pastor, Timothy needed to understand how he could shepherd all the people in his congregation, slaves and masters. So Paul is giving this instruction to help Timothy be a good pastor so that he could shepherd the slaves in his congregation who were in a difficult situation that they may never could have gotten out of. Okay, so the bottom line is that in Christ, all people are equal. There are no social barriers, there are no economic barriers, there are no racial barriers. Uh, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul is addressing slavery in the ancient world, and he's telling slaves how they are to relate to their masters. Now, It's really hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around how to apply this to ourselves because we don't live in that ancient culture. But the principle is the same. What principles, what biblical principles can we gain from this passage that help us today? And the closest thing I can think of is as employees, as people that work in the workforce, how do we relate to our supervisors? How do we relate to those that work above us? And so remember what I said is the main point of this passage description. Scripture, your attitudes and your actions at work can either help or hurt your Christian witness. So let's look at the principles. Three principles this morning 
that will help us honor God at our work. Here's the first. You must display an attitude of respect toward your supervisors. Now, in verse 1, most scholars believe that Paul is addressing how slaves should respond to masters who are not Christian. What happens if you have a non-Christian boss? What happens if you have a boss who's a jerk, a boss who's unfair, a a boss who's even hostile to the gospel? Well, you show them honor and you show them respect. Now, this word honor has, has already shown up two times in 1 Timothy. What does Paul say there? Let all who are under a yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. He already said we are to honor widows. He said we are to honor elders. And now he says, slaves, you are to honor your masters. Now, this is difficult. This does not mean that you have to necessarily like the person who's over you because they may be a jerk, but you honor them because of their position as one in authority, because God has placed them as an authority over you. You honor them the same way that we honor the governing authorities that are over us because God has put them in a position of authority. Peter addresses this in kind of a different way, 1 Peter 2, 18-20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing that when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now we can understand when Paul says, hey, respect your your masters, respect those that are nice to you. But what about the ones that are unjust? That word unjust there that, that Peter uses is where we get our word scoliosis, one who's hardened, one who's who's hardened, bent, dishonest. How do you continue to work under a boss who's manipulative, unfair, cold, unjust? And maybe you will suffer at your workplace, but Peter says don't suffer for doing wrong. If you suffer for doing wrong, you deserve it because you've done wrong. But if you suffer for doing right, you're doing everything right, and you suffer at work, count it a gracious thing because God's in control. This is where we need a healthy dose of God's sovereignty. God has sovereignly placed you in your jobs, and you trust God to work things out according to His will. You can't change a lot of things that happen at your workplace. What's the one thing, you can, what's the one thing you're in control of at the workplace? What's the one thing you're in control over? Your attitudes and your actions. And you trust in a sovereign God. You don't take revenge. You don't try to get back at your co-workers or back at your boss or, or try to take revenge or, 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 or try to repay evil. Romans 12, 17-19 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, here's the true test of your godly attitude at work. It's not when your boss is looking, it's when the boss is not around. It's when they don't have their eyes on you. What do you do when they're not around? You see, the temptation is to, have, is to be on your best behavior when they're directly supervising you. And then the moment they leave, what do you do? So what are some practical ways you can have a good attitude at work? 
even when your boss isn't around. Now, these aren't earth-shattering. These are going to be nothing that you haven't heard before, but let me just give you some practical scriptural advice. Don't gossip about your boss or your coworkers. Don't gossip. I read this earlier during our time of confession. 2 Corinthians 12, 20. For I fear that perhaps when I come to you, I may not find you as I wish and that you may not find me as you want to. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Don't gossip at work. Okay, don't slander your boss or your coworkers. Don't slander them. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now here's the next one, and this is one where you're going to have to say, dear Jesus, help me. Don't grumble about your boss or your coworker. I got a verse for this one. You're going to like it. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oh, Paul, I wish that wasn't in the Bible. Especially that little word, all. Okay, Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Don't gossip. Don't slander. Don't grumble. But here's another one. Don't become entitled or conceited or think that you deserve more than what God has given you. You kind of have this entitlement mentality that God needs to give me all these things. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12 says this, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Do your work and don't expect to get more than what you deserve. And become entitled. So the first way we honor God at work is with our attitude. Do you have an attitude of respect towards your supervisors? You don't slander. You don't gossip. You don't complain. You're not entitled. Your attitude is godly towards those that are supervising you. That's the first. Your attitudes. Now here's the second. You must serve the Lord at your work with wholehearted integrity. This is your actions. Serve the Lord with integrity. Let your actions be godly. Now, especially when your believer is, I mean, when your supervisor is a believer, because look at verse 2. This is when the, the, the masters are believers. Those who have believing masters must not be respectful on the ground that they are brothers. Now, there could have been an issue where the slaves thought, well, because my master is a Christian, I can slack off. I can take liberties. After all, Christians are forgiving. I can kind of coast at work and just kind of assume that I don't have to put forth my best because, after all, I'm working for a Christian employee. We're, we're brothers in Christ, so we can kind of, we, we don't have to have the, that good work ethic because, after all, you know, they're going to be forgiving. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 6 5 through 8. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free. 
not in eye service. That's an, it's a weird term that Paul uses. Don't just be a good employee when your boss is watching, but when he's not watching, when his eye's not on you. Now, remember in gym class when you were supposed to do push-ups and the coach wasn't looking and you, you'd cheat? Okay, so when I played basketball back in high school, we had to um, shoot free throws, and so you partnered up, and you shot free throws, and you had to make 8 out of 10. If you didn't make 8 out of 10, you had to run suicides. Some of you know what suicides are. So what, so what did we do? Everybody got 8 out of 10 because everybody lied, okay? <laughs> when the coach wasn't around watching you shoot the free throws, you're like, okay, 7, 6, okay, we're going to round up to 8 so we don't have to run a suicide. So we cheated because he wasn't watching us. His eye wasn't on us. And so Paul's like, don't, don't cheat. Just when his eye's on you, you know, when his eye's off you, you can go do whatever you want. And don't be a people pleaser. Don't be a brown noser. Don't try to compromise on your integrity to get ahead. Don't do things you thought you would never do. Do your best. Work whether your boss is watching you or whether he's not watching you with a sincere heart. Colossians 3, 23-24 says this. Whatever you do, work heartily. Heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. Work heartily. Work honestly. Give a good day's work to your supervisor as a person of integrity. So let me just share with you that no job that you do is trivial. Some of you may think, well, I don't, my job doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. I just kind of sit in an office all day and don't change the world. Or I work out in the field and I just ride my tractor. I'm not making a huge change. Or I'm just, I'm a teenager and I'm a babysitter. Or I'm a teenager and I, and I mow lawns. Or whatever it is you do, you may think, you know what, I'm not, I'm not really counting for anything. What Paul is saying here is no job's insignificant because what you're doing, you're serving the Lord. You're not just serving other people. You're not just doing your job You as a Christian are serving the Lord through your job. So no job's insignificant, no job's trivial. It's all for the glory of God. Now, as we get back to chapter 6 here in in, in Timothy, there's an interesting phrase that Paul uses there at the end of verse 2. Why do we do this? Why are we not to be disrespectful? Why are we to serve all the better? He says, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Benefit. It's where we get our English word benefactor. It's interesting, in that ancient culture, a benefactor was a rich person that provided for somebody that had less than, uh, you know, a a poor person. Paul shifts the language here. He makes a radical shift. He says, listen, slaves, you actually become the benefactor and your master becomes the one that receives your good deeds because of your good work. And your brothers in Christ, you love one another in Christ, so serve as a way to be a good example to your fellow brother. So what Paul's saying here is your attitudes and your actions will either help or hurt your Christian witness. You want to serve with integrity. You want to be a person of integrity. Now, this is not an argument for slavery. Paul understands the culture. Paul understands that these slaves are in a position that they can't get out of, so he's giving them pastoral advice on how to make the best out of a bad situation by being people of integrity, helping them navigate a challenging life situation. And so your attitude and your actions should help 
your Christian witness, not hurt your Christian witness. So attitudes, number one, how you show respect, actions, how you work with integrity. But here's really the bottom line. This is the third thing. This, this is really the important reason why Paul puts us all together. Here, here, here's why our attitudes and actions should not hurt the gospel witness. Here's the third thing. The glory of God and the spread of the gospel should motivate your work ethic. Is that why you get up and go to work, the glory of God and the advance of the gospel? Or is it I go to work because i got to get a paycheck? Notice the two reasons Paul says there in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that, so that, wh- wh- why, Paul? Two reasons. One, the name of God may not be reviled, and the teaching may not be reviled. First, he says the name of God may not be reviled. That word reviled means blasphemed. You don't want God's name to be taken in vain by others because of your work ethic. You don't want people cussing out God because of you on the job. You don't want God's name to be maligned because of your actions and attitudes. Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of your Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God's name could be taken in vain by how we respond on the job. Romans 2, 23-24, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You don't want God's name to be blasphemed because of your attitudes and actions at work. And second, you don't want the gospel to be hindered. Paul calls it the teaching. In the context of 1 Timothy, that's the gospel, the message of the gospel. You don't want that to be offended. So as Christians, we don't want to do anything on the job that would cause people to speak badly about God himself or put a stumbling block in the way of the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now here's the point. The gospel message in and of itself is a stumbling block, is offensive. Jesus dying on the cross for sinners who are guilty before a holy God, that's a stumbling block. And that's all we want to be as a stumbling block. The only stumbling block we want at our jobs is the offense of the gospel itself. We don't want to give cause for somebody to stumble or to fall or to malign God because of our actions or our attitudes. If somebody's going to be stumbling or if somebody's going to be offended, let it be over the gospel message itself of Christ and Him crucified. Let's not put anything in their way that's going to be a negative witness. Again, Mounts, the New Testament scholar, has some good comments on this passage. He says this, Slaves are to respect their masters not because slavery is a proper institution or because Paul supposedly has no social conscience. Instead, this is what he says, the success of the gospel is more significant than a lot of any one individual. And therefore, slaves should behave in a way that does not bring reproach on the gospel. Now, in Titus... Paul summarizes his teaching into a wonderful statement about how we are to 
live our lives on the workforce. Titus 2, 9-10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You want to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, what does it mean to adorn? That word means you want Jesus to look attractive on the work at your work. You are working in such a way that your attitudes and your actions are making Jesus look attractive to those around you. You're putting forth a positive witness. You're adorning. And notice how Paul says, in everything. In everything. So our ultimate goal in life, in everything, is to live in such a way that our attitudes and our actions at the job are to adorn the gospel, to make the gospel look glorious, look attractive. Now, I could leave you this morning and say, okay, go be better workers, go be better worker bees for Jesus. And that would be a good message. But I want to talk about something that's a deeper reality that every single one of us, whether you work or not, there's a deeper reality here, and it's the issue of slavery. It's the issue of slavery. Did you know that every single one of you, including me, were born in spiritual slavery. We were born enslaved to our sins. We were born enslaved to the devil. We were born spiritually dead in bondage to our sin. We could not free ourselves, every single one of us. So when we talk about slavery, you may not fully understand it, the way it was back in that ancient culture, but you need to understand that you were born in a sinful condition that made you a slave to sin, and you were held captive by the devil and by your sin. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from what? What has Jesus delivered us from? The domain of darkness, slavery to sin, and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. What was our condition before Jesus saved us? Listen to Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once, this is before we were saved, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to what? Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Every single one of us were born slaves to passions and to pleasures and to sin and to Satan. Spiritually dead, enslaved, couldn't get ourselves out. You know, Jesus addressed the religious leaders of his day, and he said something very interesting to them that offended them. They got offended by what Jesus said. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8, 31. So, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They're offended. We've never been enslaved. Why are you calling us slaves, Jesus? That's offensive language. We're, we're Israelites. We're not slaves. 
Why do we need to be set free? And Jesus answered them in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Your greatest need is to be set free from slavery to sin. Your greatest need is to have Jesus to free you from the bondage of sin and guilt and hell. And the only way to be free is if Jesus sets you free. You can't set yourself free. Jesus has to set you free. And how does Jesus set you free? You confess your sin. You own up to your sin. You agree with Jesus that you are enslaved to sin. You are enslaved to pleasure. You are enslaved to lust. You are guilty before a holy God. You acknowledge that and you say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I am in prison. I can't set myself free. Would you please free me? Would you please set me free? You unreservedly, you wholeheartedly place your trust in Jesus alone to save you. You cry out to him and say, Jesus, you're the only one that can do this. And so I want everybody in this room to be confident that when you leave this place, you can say, I've been set free from sin. I'm free. I'm I'm not guilty. I'm not a slave to sin. I've been set free. You repent of your sin. You believe in Jesus who alone has the power to set you free. You cannot be a good example in your attitudes and actions at work unless Jesus has first set you free from your sin and made you his child. The only way you can have a positive work ethic, good attitude, be a positive witness is if you go from being a slave to sin to free in Christ. And remember, we want to do all things for the glory of God, and we want to do all things that adorn the gospel, that make the gospel look good. So, may our attitudes and our actions at work adorn the gospel. Make Jesus look attractive. Advance the gospel. Glorify God in everything. In everything. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, including your attitudes and your actions at work. So let's bow our heads this morning. And let's spend some time asking the Lord, if you are a slave to sin this morning and need to be set free, your greatest needs to cry out to Jesus to release you. And he will, by his power, forgive you and set you free. Others may need to evaluate your attitudes and actions at work and ask the Lord to give you strength. Maybe even today as you go on your shift or whatever. Let's just spend some time in prayer this morning, asking the Lord to give us help in whatever ways we need it, for his glory alone. Father in heaven, we are the first to admit in this room that we struggle with attitudes at times. We may even struggle with actions at times that don't glorify you. We can be quick to be complainers at work. We can want to cut corners at work. 
we can find the worst in the situation and not understand your sovereignty and how you're working. So, Lord, help us to have the right perspective that you're sovereign over all things. And, Jesus, we want to live our lives in such a way that we adorn the gospel. We make the gospel look attractive. We don't put any type of hindrance in the way of the message of Christ by our attitudes or actions, but, Lord, that we would do all things for your glory, all things for your honor. So we know this is a difficult thing. Lord, Lord, there may be some work situations in this room that are very difficult. And so, Lord, that's where we need your help. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that you give grace and help and strength to those in this room that may be struggling at the job. Maybe they're looking for a new job, or maybe they don't have a job right now, or they're just there's difficulties at the workplace. I pray that you would just help them through those. Give them strength, give them grace, give them direction, give them guidance. Lord, help us to be a church family and individual Christians that do all things for your glory. And Lord, even in home, wherever we are, may our attitudes and our actions be glorifying to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you've saved us from slavery to sin. You've released us from the domain of darkness. You've forgiven us of all of our sins. We are free, and the Son has set us free. We are free indeed. Thank you, Jesus, for setting us free. My prayers, if there's anybody in this room that's not been set free from their sin, today would be the day that they're released from their bondage and they have the hope of forgiveness of sins and eternal life only through Jesus Christ, who alone has the power to set us all free. Thank you, Jesus, for the freedom that we have in Christ. We love you. We honor you. May you give us grace and strength to live for you this week. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.